Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. treat today with us at the Bregman Leadership Podcast is Dave Logan. He is the author with John King and Haley Fisher-Wright of Tribal Leadership, Leveraging Natural Groups to Build a Thriving Organization. Um, This book came my way through the best of all circumstances, which is a client said to me, uh, I, I want you to read a book because this book is having a big impact on our organization. And, and that, you know, is always the best kind of reference for a book. And I read it and, and really enjoyed it and had some fun questions and reached out to Dave, who was kind enough to respond and, and come on the podcast on short notice. So thank you, Dave. Dave is the uh, Chief Innovation Officer and Chief Transformation Officer at P3 Health Partners. And uh, he also teaches leadership and negotiation at USC uh, at the, in the Executive MBA program. He was co-founder and a senior partner at Culture Sync, which was a management consulting firm specializing in cultural change. Uh, and we're lucky to have him. Dave, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And just one clarification. Um, Culture Sync is still going fine. I just moved to an emeritus role so that I could focus on trying to fix healthcare. As most people in the United States know, healthcare is epically broken and I've been trying for years to fix it as a professor and fix it as a consultant and just it's clear you have to fix it from the inside. So I jumped into a C-suite job at this new startup healthcare company based all over the West. And um, but no, CultureSync is still going fine. So great. So, Dave, let's just start by, you know, if you could in a couple of minutes give us the framework of stage one through five, kind of what you've seen in organizations. I'll, I'll cut to the chase to say that this is built on a tremendous amount of research that Dave and his colleagues back in the day at CultureSync did uh, around what, you know, how organizations uh, both grow and succeed and, and what culturally they look like in that, in that journey to success. And maybe you could just give us a brief overview so that we could jump into some specifics. Yeah, sure. Happy to. Well, so first of all, as both a, a scholar, as an executive, as a, as a consultant, because I still do a bit of that, you know, you have to start with what are you, what are you, what are you solving for? What's the point of doing all this? And we're all interested, I think, in the same thing, which is how you make organizations better, how you get them to perform better, how you get them to hit their numbers more reliably, better numbers, and so on. So the question is, how do you do that? What's kind of the minimum amount that you need to get right to get to results? And it turns out in management science, there's a growing consensus that it's four different things that have to come together. So think of these as four puzzle pieces that all have to fit together. So one of them is strategy which is what you offer and what you sell at what price, whether it's a product or service. Number two is structure. So that's who's in what job, who reports to whom, and what do they get to do because they're in a certain job. The number three is systems and processes. So that's all the formal ways of getting work done. And until a bunch of us got serious about this a number of years ago, you know, several decades ago, a person named Edgar Schein has probably done the best work. It was really those three that people try to get to work together. And it's become really obvious in the last probably 20 years that there's a fourth, which is what tribal leadership is about. And that's, as you said, culture. So the idea is to take the culture piece 
and make sure that it's fitting with the other pieces. So your culture needs to support your strategy, your culture needs to support your, your structure, your culture needs to support your systems and operations, and they all need to support each other. So that's kind of the fundamental premise. So let me ask you a question already with that, which is that, and, and maybe, and I'm sure the answer to this is embedded in one of those four, but, but people is, you know, sort of the obvious, like if you think about uh, uh, strategy and structure and culture, culture, you know, and processes and systems yeah. are, you know, in some ways the people are embedded all over that in, in other ways, the people are in the culture, but, but I wonder where, uh, you know, like are, are, are the people being left out in those four? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. So there are older models that, that broke people out. The problem is, how do you have strategy without people? How do you have, you know, kind of anything without people? So on this new model, sometimes called the vital four factors model, you're describing the people in two different ways. So the formal relationships between them, like the hierarchy or the matrix, that's right. You know, that's the org structure. And then the informal side is, is culture. And those two, again, we, you know, will work together. So it's very common, for example, to do a reorg and nothing changes. You know, we move the boxes around, but nothing actually changes. Why? Because the culture, as Peter Drucker liked to say, culture eats strategy for breakfast. It also eats structure for breakfast. So, so you know, the specific answer to your question is people live in those two boxes. So, so in terms of is someone a, a fit for their job, that shows up in structure. Do they have the capabilities? Do they have the talents? Do they have the background? And then the, and then the informal side, how do they work together? Do you have a team-based structure? That shows up in culture. Got it. Great. So why don't you unpack for us a little bit the culture piece? Okay, sure. So what we did that was uh, at least a little different than what people had done before is we noticed that, so we noticed a couple things. One is that when you think of a, of a culture of a, of a company, like I'm across the street from a Target, you know, Target retail place. So um, here in Tucson, I live in Los Angeles. I'm just borrowing a conference room for our, our call here. But if you think of Target, you know, like what's their culture? And the answer is, it's too big to know. Culture is composed of subcultures. And so this one across the street probably has a culture. And the one, I think there's another one here in Tucson has a culture. There are five within driving distance of where I live in LA. They've all got cultures. And then their you know, company headquarters is in, is in Minneapolis, I think. So they've got a whole bunch of cultures. So the first thing we notice is that you have to get more micro, more tribal, more local with this idea of culture. So what we define a tribe to be is a group of between 20 and 150 people. So with that definition, this target across the street has at least one culture. They might have several because they have shifts. People probably work together in different ways. So that's the first thing that we notice is you have to get micro, not macro, about culture. And almost all the studies go down the big company road. So you know, Wells Fargo's in the news. Well, why? Well, because they got a bad culture. No, they don't have a bad culture. In some branches, the culture is whatever you want to say, toxic or promotes illegal activities. But all of Wells Fargo does not have a single culture. You know, even my own uh, company, we're, we're private equity based, we're hiring people as fast as we can. We're still under 300 people, but still we've got multiple cultures because we're, we operate many different geographies, many different clinics. So the second thing we notice, and this gets to the heart of what um, why I think we're, we're on the phone today is that within these little cultures, it's they're sort of like a, a stage development model. So you have to figure out what stage you're in 
And you can go to the next stage. The later stages are better. They get more done. They're more able. They're more competent. They're more innovative. And the earlier stages are less all of those things. They're less productive. They're less innovative. So to unpack it, we've got five tribal stages. So starting with one, which is everything you don't want, going up to five, everything you do want. So stage one, this is about 2% of, again, the little tribes that exist in organizations. So we're measuring tribes. We're not measuring people. We're also not measuring companies. So again, Target, you know, they might have a thousand tribes. So there's a pretty good chance some of those are this kind of stage one. So the theme of stage one is life sucks. And it's where people will actively go against their values. They will actively undermine their values. So stage one is where you have illegal activity. It's where you have criminal activity, which is why I bring up Wells Fargo. There clearly was criminal activity happening in at least some branches. But that, again, that's not to condemn the whole thing. So that's stage one. Stage two is about 25% of tribes. And the theme there is not life sucks, but it's my life sucks. So in these types of places, in these cultures, it's not that people undermine their values. They don't really have a relationship with values. They don't make decisions from values. And then stage three, which is the case about 49% of the time, so about half of all tribes are here, the theme is I'm great, and Peter, I'm sorry, but you're not. And But if you and I were to have this together, you'd say, no, 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 Dave, you're confused. Let me, Peter, tell you why I'm great. And I would say, well, okay, Peter, but you know, do you teach at a university? Do you have a New York Times? He said, well, actually, I've done things that are better than that. So we sort of go back and forth. And it's a really nauseating discussion. We've all been in them. And they go by all sorts of you know, unhappy names that I won't say this in case you know, children are, are, are listening. But essentially, it's just a big clash of egos. So that, that's stage three. Again, it's I'm great and you're not. And so there, people tend to speak from the point of view of I. I know better. I am more experienced. I'm capable of solving this. If all of you would just shut up and do what I say, would get better. Promise everybody's saying that. In the next stage, stage four, the theme is we're great. This is the case about 22% of the time. And what makes the we form is not just a group of people that says we're awesome. It's a group of people that forms around a commitment of some kind. So it could be a commitment of values. Uh, like the company that I work for, we have a very strong commitment. We actually say it a bit more crassly than this, but again, in case children are, are listening, we want to unbreak healthcare. You know, my mom died of a medical error. That's a fancy way of saying, um, you know, she was killed by the healthcare system. Not that anyone, you know, murdered her, but it was a series of mistakes that led to her death. Like that is intolerable. So the company that I work for, we're doing our best to hang out in stage four. So we're great. And what makes us great is we're all on the same page with that commitment. And then we get very specific with how we work with doctors and how we train nurses and how we handle incentives and the finances and the contracts that we take and everything else. So that's stage four. It's we're great. So before I get to five, just notice on the difference between three and four, if you can take a tribe that's at three and move it to four, your KPIs are going to jump way up. And I'll give you the conservative number that we published and a number of people have number of academics have actually thought, suggested that we were too conservative, but you can get a 500% to 700% improvement on your KPIs. If you go from stage three, I'm great, you're not, where we're constantly you know, squabbling and go to stage four, where we make decisions from a common point of view. And there's a lot of other things that go into stage four. I'm sure you want to you know, unpack that. Then the last one, stage five, is life is great. 
So just to jump back to you know Target for a minute, uh, actually having done some work with Target, they're a pretty good company, and you'll get a Target that will be competitive with another Target. You know, like again, I'm not I'm not from Tucson, but I bet the one across the street, if it's a better run Target, is probably competitive with the other Tucson Target. So you know right. we're we're great, they're not. So there's a sense of a competitor. At USC, where I teach, we all know who's not great, and it's UCLA, our crosstown rival. So at stage five, the theme is life is great. It's a lot like stage four, but there is no them. So it's not us against them. It's it's where the cause becomes much more you know central. So on its you know on its best days, the company that I'm working for is stage five. We're we're not trying to beat another healthcare company. You know we'll partner with whoever we can in service of that. But like the really great examples are Pixar, where they just want to make great movies. And you ask them who their competition is, and they say water. You know water? What do you mean? Yeah, we we can't render water. It, look, it, it doesn't look like this, you know, in in the movies that we make. So it just drives them crazy. So it's you kind of get a noble obsession. And again, just to summarize, that's about two percent of tribes, and that's where you get the world-changing innovation. Is often out of groups that are at stage five. So I, I'm. This is great. That was a great summary. Uh, it's almost as though you had written the book. And I have a a lot of questions around this transition from stage three to stage four. Um, it feels like the transition from stage four to stage five is almost easier. It almost feels like the biggest challenge is to move from this ego-centric, I'm, I'm going to do everything that I can to be the best I can possibly be, to I'm going to really devote myself to something bigger than me. And, and, um, yeah. and that seems really challenging. And, and, and I know, you know, like, I, it's funny because you write about this in the book, but if you ask most people what, what stage they're at, they'll say, oh, you know, four or five. And, and if you ask other people what stage those people who think they're four or five at, they'll, you know, almost always say three. And, and I'll say, like, part of my interest in this is not only to help my clients, but, but personally, you know, the book was a good eye-opener for me because I'm, I'm sort of somewhat embarrassingly solidly in stage three, I think. I mean, I think I take some dips into stage four in terms of what I'm trying to create in the world. But I definitely, it was very humbling. Like, I could read myself in there and think, huh, there's a lot of ways in which it's really about me and I don't like that and I want to take this leap. And yet, I, you know, there's this, um, you know, you, you, you talk in the book about an epiphany of having an epiphany uh, and, and it's like the St. Paul moment almost of falling off the horse and, or falling out of the carriage and suddenly, you know, seeing God. Um, there's this great cartoon. I'm sure you've seen it or maybe not, but it's, it's of this scientist at the front of the room and there's this blackboard and there's all these equations and that's labeled stage one. And then there's all these equations with an answer and that's stage three. And stage two, there's an arrow connecting the two with the words, then a miracle occurs. And, and there's a scientist in the, you know, he's, it's, this guy's presenting to a room full of scientists and one of them's raising their hand saying, you know, I have a question about stage two. And, you know, or, or you know, step two. And I feel like there's an element of that to the shift, which is how do I give up, let go of, what seems like, you know, we've spent our lives working towards in school and in jobs and to like create personal success and let that go. It sounds like there's a leap of faith that says, I'm going to give, give that up for the sake of this larger 
purpose that I'm committed to. And whether that purpose is the we or whether that purpose is stage five, which is something bigger, you know, we're trying to fix healthcare, we're trying to bring humanity into the workplace or whatever. So I'm, I'm really curious about the experience you've had about, you know, successfully shifting. And I'll just throw one more challenge into this, which is shifting from stage three to stage four, but obviously not coming out of a stage three mentality. So in fact, if I if I'm using my stage three mentality, I'm going to say, I know I'm going to be a better state. Like I'm going to, I'm going to move myself into stage four, which seems like it's a fool's errand because you're just sort of embedded in the same mentality you're trying to get out of. So that's, that's sort of my big question that I'd love to talk to you about. Yeah. Well, so I, I appreciate what you're saying just to unpack it a little bit. So having been at this game for a long time, whatever people think is the hardest stage to move past, is generally the one where they spend the most time in. So I've been a part of the world where people say, you can't get out of stage one. You know, how would you ever do that? And I'm working with somebody now, not at my current company, somebody in the USC world, that's solidly at stage two. You know, life just sucks. Sorry, my life just sucks. And there's no way that this is ever gonna get better. And she cannot see a way past that. Like that is just an insurmountable goal to get to the point where she could get to, and she has been at stage three, but where she get back is just like insurmountable. So to her, she looks at the model and says stage two is the hardest. So then to, to get to your specific question, so on, on stage three. And I would say also if 50% of the people are at stage three, then we're probably not alone, meaning that, that there's probably a hump there that a lot of people aren't getting past. No? Yeah. Well, yes. But remember, we're measuring tribes. We're not measuring people. And so people have the capacity to interact at a number of different levels. You know, if you, Peter, were in a group at, in stage two, you could certainly communicate that way. If you were, you know, in a really great group of stage four, it would be hard for you to not sort of join the we-ness of it all. So people have a certain amount of kind of bandwidth. And difficulty is the way that we've structured organizations. Again, I'm coming at this as an organizational scholar. Is you look at, at you know, how do we how do we interview for a job? I'm actually in Tucson mainly because I'm interviewing somebody for a job at, at uh, the company where I'm working. And uh, I've, I've not met her before, but if she does her job, it'll be a bunch of I statements. You know, so why are you interested in this job? Well, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I'm good at this, I'm good at this, I'm good at this. Well, you know, it's not only that, but when when I worked with the Hay Group and we designed and and I did a lot of teaching of competency-based interviewing, the you know, you're actually taught in competency-based interviewing to interrupt them if they say we and say, hold on, I'm trying to figure out what's the difference between you in this picture and everybody else, because I want to know your skills. So you're, you're kind of coaching people to move out of stage four and into stage one and into stage three. And then we wonder why that number is so high, you know, 49% of the time in organizations, because it's how we train people. We, we, we hire for whoever wins the stage three game, you know, that person gets the job. And then we say, we're here, you're here, congratulations. Now you're part of this team. Well, I mean, what's gotten me this far? You know, what got me through middle school, high school, college? Well, that's school? and that's the leap of faith. The leap of faith is to say it will be in my interest. But but actually, that's not. Even, I mean, I was going to say it would be in my interest to think in terms of the we. But even that is stage three thinking. Yeah. Well, like what you started to say is it's not just a fool's errand. Like it's madness inducing. If you say, look, I Peter recognize that I'm in stage three. So I am going to declare from this moment forward, I will be a stage four person. I will lead from shared core values. I will set up triads, which is a, a part of part of that. You're, you're just you're just a slightly better version of stage three. 
And, and so you keep saying a, a leap of faith. Like there, there are two ways that people can get from three to four. But before we get to that, please remember, these are methods of communicating. No one's asking you or anybody else to not be able to go to stage three when you need to. So if I'm teaching a class and somebody says, hey, everything you're saying is nonsense, I've got to be able to say, let me tell you why your point of view is incorrect, right? You've got to be able to you know, play the stage three card. The problem is for most professionals, we spend almost all of our time at stage three, not at four, not at five. Okay. So then, so I, I mentioned there's a, you know, to unpack the three to four, the most common way that we saw that people sort of moved was not this leap of faith. There's something better. I just have to trust it. It's more almost a, a nauseating epiphany. Wow. I'm an egomaniacal, you know, to use Bob Sutton's word guy from Stanford, you know, I'm an asshole. He, he wrote a book called The No Asshole Rule. You know, wow, I, wherever I go, I do almost all the talking. I talk over people. I interrupt. I'm constantly pushing my view. And I wonder why, when I look at the cultures around me, there's a bunch of stage two. You know, why is that? And I get sort of sickened by, did I do that? And then I, I, I almost observe myself dressing somebody down. And I realize I'm dropping them in stage two because I'm so solidly in stage three. And then I'm holding them accountable for not being in the game, right? And so people just sort of get overwhelmed by that. And it can happen in a variety of ways. There's a bunch of ways to sort of, you know, jumpstart it. But I would say two things are required. You know, one is just that sort of nauseating realization that you are not gonna get where you wanna go in life using only stage three. It's just not enough. It's not that you wanna lose it, you wanna add to it. Right. It's necessary, but it's in, but it's insufficient. And then number two, the leap of faith, I, I think, is really valid, where if you look at the best tribes, the best companies that are out there, they really do behave in a stage four way. And it really is a leap of faith to say this is really uncomfortable, but I'm going to try it and see how it goes. And then it's about what we think. And when you say I'm going to try it, you're really and you mentioned this before and you talk about it in the book, you're really talking about the language that we use. Like I'm going yeah. to use the language. But it's not just language, right? Meaning that you're going to use the language of we, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's all sorts of games we can play with language, especially if we're good communicators, that, um, that create a disconnect between what we're saying and what we, what we actually believe or the place where the energy that we bring to a situation. So yeah. it's like it's, it's the language you use, but I imagine it's also the energy that you bring to the situation that makes a difference. Yeah, and I know we just have a couple minutes left, so let me just kind of sort of wrap this up with the, the two telltale signs of moving from three to four, because that's kind of the essence of it. So number one, you're right, is the language. And there are people who say, here's what we think, here's what we believe. But if you really poke into it, it's sort of the royal we. They don't actually mean we. They just want to sound, they want to sound sort of bigger. And that's actually stage three. So the other way to look at it is in the network of relationships. So people at stage three, if I'm at stage three, you know, I'll connect what's called dyadically. So hub and spoke with you, Peter, and I'll connect hub and spoke with this other person, hub and spoke. So stage three loves to hub and spoke because when we hub and spoke, it's a matter of winning one person over at a time. So when, so from that point of view, when someone at stage three has a meeting, there's a big conference table. I talk to this person, I talk to this person, I talk to this person. Okay, now let me bring it back. Here's the next question. And I'm, I'm actually having a whole set of dyadic conversations. Stage four doesn't do that. Stage four sets up what are called triads. 
which are three person relationships where one person has the back of the relationship between the other two. So then if I notice that someone isn't, isn't contributing, well, what do you think? Let's all, let's all stop for a minute and bring in this person's you know, uh, uh, point of view. Or it seems that you two are having a disagreement. Let's see if we can harmonize those. So that's having the back of the relationship. So those are really the telltale signs of stage three and four. So listen, I got to run in about one minute. So you get the parting shot here. All right. So the, so thank you. And, and, and the parting shot is just a thank you. You know, there's obviously lots more to talk about. The book is very worth reading. It's not a hard read. Uh, it has some main points that are really interesting and impactful and can serve as a, as a useful mirror. Um, the book is Tribal Leadership, Leveraging Natural Groups to Build a Thriving Organization. Dave, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Peter. Good talking with you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.